pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing time in worship. Such a great way to begin the morning, right? If we could begin every morning like this, and we can, in the presence of the Lord. So, just so good to set our hearts and our gaze on Him and our voices on Jesus. Are we ready to see more of Jesus, right? Reveal your glory. We ask you, Lord, reveal your glory to us. So, last night, God got us all settled in, at least I hope he did, right, for you, and you got some good rest and all of that. But while we were together last night, he stirred up our hearts, right? He just got in there and started working in our hearts to to want to see more of Jesus. We are on the lookout for his glory. So did anybody find any of these yet? Yeah? Yeah, found some of them. Did you, did you also hide them? Okay, because remember, there's not going to be any there if you don't hide them too. We're all working in this glory card thing together. So you definitely want to keep your eyes looking for the glory of Jesus. And that's the focus of what you're writing here. Things that you're seeing in Jesus. So you see them, and then you write them, and then you hide them, and you go about looking for them. And we're all doing that collectively together. And as you do, you pick that up and you go, yes, you affirm that in your heart. You're seeing that too with your sister who wrote it down. So help us to be women on the lookout, right? And hopefully this morning too, you spent some time in God's presence with your morning devotion and you took that time to to draw close and, and to say yes and to say I want to see you. Because what is it that our passage in Hebrews 1 tells us? You know it, right? And he is the radiance of his glory. Let's say that again with the glory it deserves. And he is the radiance of his glory. So our eyes are watchful to see that glory and to let it catch not only our eyes but our hearts, right? Because we know that when we see Jesus, who are we seeing? We're seeing God. Because that's what Hebrews 1.3 also tells us about Jesus. It goes on to say that he is what? The exact representation of God's nature. So if it's not already, open your Bible up to Hebrews chapter 1 and we're going to, or you can pull out that card and we're going to say the next line of the passage we're memorizing together. You'll see it there in gold. So that second line, it says, and the exact representation of his nature. Let's say that several times. And the exact representation of his nature. Once more. And the exact representation of his nature. So we want to pull out a new journal page today and write that line down, okay? And the exact representation of his nature. <clears throat> 
So that word that you just wrote down, the word exact, it means exactly that, okay? Exact. Not kind of like, not resembles, not, it might be a little similar to, but Jesus is the exact representation of God. So let's put these two lines together now that we know, all right? And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So just from those two statements alone, obviously Jesus is pretty deserving of attention. And because of that, we're gonna gaze at him this morning. Now, remember you have a note page if you wanna take notes. I actually gave you two pages today because there is a lot we're gonna cover, okay? This time, especially this morning. So if you need them, take them. If not, and don't get worried. God's gonna show himself to us and we're gonna get lost in that. That's my prayer. So we wanna start there, gazing. You know, there's a very big difference between gazing and glancing. And I wanna sh share a story with you to kinda help paint a word picture of that. So back in July, my husband and I had gone on a vacation to the beach. And one morning, you know, we go out there and we put our chairs in the sand and near the shore, and there was this family that was right nearby us. <clears throat> now there were several kids in this family, but one of those kids really got my attention. And he was a cute little boy. His name was JC, and he was probably about six years old. And he had this glowing suntan. He had a little chubby belly and this spiky brown hair and these little dimples that, that just shined. But JC was also very loud and he was very full of energy, which is how I know his name. Because his family was continually saying, JC, calm down, JC, be quiet, JC, stop. Now you might have one of those kids. I used to have one of those kids. He's married to my new daughter now. But you know, we, we've all been around kids like that. And, and they said it, but he didn't stop, right? We all know that too. And at one point I looked up and I saw he was just running this way and that way along the shoreline because he saw something jumping in the water and that something was dolphins. Now, more than likely, as a six-year-old boy, JC had probably seen some pictures of dolphins, and maybe he had seen dolphins on TV. But now, in this moment, he was like seeing dolphins for real, like they were right in front of him. So he stopped, and he was just gazing at these dolphins. He just couldn't believe it. Now, how do I know that? Well, because while JC was gazing at the dolphins, I was watching him. See, nothing had slowed him down that whole morning. Nothing had stopped him. But now he saw these dolphins out of the water and he started gazing. Now, after a few minutes of taking in their glory, his normal self took over him again and he started screaming and he started running up to his family. And I'm not kidding you, this is what he's doing. Dolphins! Dolphins! Look at the dolphins! He wanted them to see the dolphins. But you know what they did? Yeah, yeah, JC, we've seen dolphins before. And he's like, dolphins, dolphins, look at the dolphins. And they glanced up again, but then they just went back to their snacks and their music and their whatever conversation and all of those things, whatever had their best attention in the moment. And I sat there taking in the whole scene of this thing and the Holy Spirit whispered something to my heart. And this is what he said. When JC, Jesus Christ, reveals my glory, some gaze, 
and some glance. What about you? And I ponder that question a lot, and I think the Lord wants us to ponder that question this morning. See, last night we talked about glory and what glory does. And we found that it deeply impacts us because it draws us in and it gets our attention as some truth of something is displayed in front of us. And the reason it gets our attention is because it's so distinct. It's worthy of honor in some way. It's set apart. It's different. It's revealing of something really greater than what you might experience in just the day-to-day -day life. This morning, Jesus Christ is going to reveal some really glorious things about himself through his word. And these things are absolutely worthy of our gazing. So let's set our hearts and our minds, our whole being into doing just that, gazing. Now we actually already had some practice this morning doing that, all right? When you were playing that memory game, right? What did you have to do? You had to gaze. You had to give your energy and attention because if they turned over this card there and you had seen the other one, then you had to go, all right, I gotta remember where that card is, right? So you had to give your energy and your attention into all of that. Now we're going to continue the game, but our gaze is actually going to reveal opposites instead of matches. But in reality, in these opposites, Jesus, in Jesus, these things are actually a match, okay? So get your brain going in that, all right? Jesus is inviting us up the mountain to think this morning, all right? We got to engage our brains, get into it. And what are we going to see? We're going to see what some people would call the divergent excellencies of Christ which is a fancy way of saying that when we gaze at Jesus, it's going to seem like things that don't match at all, qualities that are divergent to each other, right? They're actually in opposition to each other, are going to be found in Christ. And these divergent excellencies, that fancy name for them, are actually going to be matches that reveal his glory. Okay, and therefore they're going to reveal the exact nature of our God. Now there are a lot of divergent excellencies in Christ. We're certainly not going to have time this morning to look at all of them in depth or to gaze at all of them, but we're going to gaze at some of them. They're going to get our attention as God puts them on display in front of us. So let's begin with these two. All right, let's begin with these two. God and man. Is Jesus God or is Jesus a man? Yes. You know, yes. that question, you're already ahead of me, yes. That question has rung through the ages in various forms. And today, people are battling through ideas and philosophies and the challenges of our day and that same question about Jesus is being asked in hearts it's being asked all over the world as people are not sure what to do with Jesus so what is the answer to that question the answer is somebody already said it yes yes Jesus is God yes Jesus is man the glory of Jesus is that he is both distinct because there has never been nor will there ever be anyone who is both God and man and his being God and man reveals so much about the nature 
of our God. So let's look at this one for a little bit. Jesus is God. How do we know that Jesus is God? Many ways, but let's just start right in Hebrews 1. See, the two verses right in Hebrews 1 reveal that Jesus is God. Right there in verse 2. You see it. It says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, through whom also he made the world. Follow this line of thinking with me. It says, Through whom also he made the world, in verse 2 of Hebrews 1. But look also in verse 10 of Hebrews. It says this about Jesus. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is telling us that Jesus created the world because all of these verses here in verse, or chapter 1 are about Jesus. So we see that. So we see that in verse 2 and in verse 10, they're clearly saying that Jesus made the heavens and the earth. But if you think back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we know that, I hope you know, that God is the creator of all of this, but Hebrews is stating that Jesus is the creator of all things. That's because Jesus and God are the same, and the Holy Spirit as well. All one being, one God expressing himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now many people, including me for many years, have had... I don't anymore, but I did for a long time, had the understanding that when Jesus was born on the earth as God's son, that was his beginning. In their mind, they think that's when, you know, he began, just like, you know, the rest of us, right? At conception, that's when your life begins. And that's what we know, and that's what we're used to thinking. And so we read about Jesus a little bit, we hear a little bit about him, all these things, and we get those same kind of ideas in my mind in our minds. In fact, for a long time for me, I thought that Jesus was God's plan B. Meaning, we were so messed up, God couldn't figure out what in the world to do with us, so he's sitting up there in heaven going, what am I going to do? I guess I'll have a son, and I'll have to send him, and let him sacrifice himself. Those crazy humans, they just can't get their lives together. That's what I came up with in my mind. You know why? because I didn't know God's word. And so my mind came up with my own idea. And that's what happens. We have a tendency to come up with these ideas in our mind based on what our realities are here instead of looking at God's word. And when our minds start in places of untruth and then they marinate in those kinds of places of untruth and we listen to other people talking about things that are not true, they lead us to these just flat, intellectual ideas about Jesus. And what happens is then that trickles down into the false ideas that then we develop about God because Jesus is the exact representation of God. And people put him together with God a lot of times. They do when they want to and they do they don't when they don't want to, all of that as well. But we get into these places where we're not seeing who he really is. The truth of God's word reveals very clearly that Jesus was alive before creation, that he was alive at creation. He was the one that created all of this and that he has been alive every moment since and will be 
until time is no more and then past that too because there is no beginning or ending to Jesus. Wrap your brain around that. That puts my brain in gridlock and makes it hurt, right? I, I, I don't have the capacity to even take in that kind of glory. He is God. That's just one little way, just looking at the fact that he is creator, it shows us that he's God. There are so many more things that we could look at in scripture that reveal that yes, he is God, but he is also a man. So we wanna take a few minutes to look at that. We know he was brought here to earth as a human when he was born as a baby in a manger. You go back to verse um, five and six in chapter one of Hebrews we find that God is calling Jesus his son. He's talking about when he begot him, all right? The fancy way for saying, we know, when he was birthed here on the earth. And do you remember what you read in your devotions this morning in John 1:14? It said, and the word, who is Jesus, right? Became flesh and he made his dwelling among us and we beheld his glory. What that means is that Jesus, who was already alive, been alive since before the world was ever created because he created, but now he has come to earth and he put on flesh. He became like us, so he became a man. Now certainly, I mean, it's just obvious, there's glory in him being God. Because as God, Jesus is also then, you think about the things of God, he's distinctly powerful. He's distinctly omniscient. He knows everything. He's, he's creator. He's majestic. He's sovereign. He's eternal. I mean, that's just crazy. That's what we were talking about just a moment ago. That means that he has the unique honor of having always been when nothing else was, and he will not be outlasted by anything. That's what it means to be God, that eternal nature. He's exalted over all. I mean, that's not obvious but there is a sense of okay he's God so there's glory that comes with that but there's also glory in him being a man because as a man we see that Jesus was willing to condescend right and come to us to put on flesh and be like us to feel our struggle there's so much glory that God would do that right to feel our pain our needs to to draw near to us in relationship and most importantly, to die in our place. I mean, there's so many reasons why we could talk about the glory of him being a man. There's so much true and distinct about Jesus that you don't see in any other man. But what about when he's both? What about when he's both? What glory? Because that will never be true of anyone else, only Jesus. There are people that have tried to mimic and mock the things that Jesus did. That's why people serve other gods, right? But no one will ever have that distinct honor of being both God and man. And Hebrews 1 is all about how distinctly, how excellently Jesus is set apart as God from all the other messengers. People talk about, you know, Buddha and Muhammad, they're all still in the grave. That's because they were just a man. But Jesus is not. Jesus is both God and man. And that's why, you know, sometimes people get hung up on the whole thing about the virgin birth. That's why it's so important to understand the virgin birth because that feeds into what you believe about Jesus being both God and man. Jesus had a human mother, 
but it was the Holy Spirit who impregnated her, right? So he had a divine father and a human mother making him both God and man. Glory, nobody else. That will never happen with anyone else. And as he walked this earth, his glory began to show forth. That's why the masses were attracted to him. He was a man. He looked like them, but he was doing things that only God could do. He was knowing things and speaking things that only God would know. And so that's why people began to say things like, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man who teaches with such authority? Who is this man who claims that he can forgive sins? They were asking because they saw a man, but he was doing things that only God could do. And at one point, Jesus looked at his disciples and he asked a question. You might remember this from reading in your Bible. The question was, who do men say that I am? And what was their answer? They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Because at this point, John the Baptist had already been beheaded. And so they're kind of making out this, you know, weird connection there. Others say Elijah. But then Jesus looked at them and said, but who do you say that I am, right? And that's the question for all of us. Who do you say that I am? Because it's one thing for me to know what I'm convinced of, where my faith lies. But who do you say that Jesus is? You know what? If we have not fully seen, if you have not fully surrendered to the truth that Jesus is God, there's going to be a fog in front of all the other glories about Jesus. Because that truth allows the other beams of light to flow forth. We were here, we've been here, our team has been here since Sunday. You may not realize that. But we've been here since Sunday prepping, getting everything ready the first few days we were here was nasty weather, all right? So take in the sunshine, ladies, because it did not look like this at all. It didn't feel like none of it. It was just, it was nasty. You couldn't see the sun. Like we were like sunrise, there doesn't seem like, now he, the sun was rising. There was just all kinds of fog and clouds in front. And if you don't see Jesus as God, yes, man came to earth, became like us, but he is God. If you don't see that, it's going to cloud all the other beams of light, of glory that he wants to shine in your life. See, many people are okay with Jesus being a great leader, being a wonderful teacher, being a moral activist, a great friend endowed with powers, but they are not okay with him being God because that changes everything. That has enormous implications and gets into the nitty-gritty of your personal life, right? Into the deepest places of who you are because Jesus said a lot of things about how we're supposed to be and who we are supposed to be. And it also speaks into our worth. It speaks into our value, our purpose, our choices, our identity, our eternity. His being God gives him the authority to do that. So we must see him not only as man, but also as God and fully both. These divergent excellencies that collide together in one person only, the glory of Jesus. And I would just say, God, clear the fog in any of our minds, in any of our hearts, and let us see. And I say both mind and heart because it's one thing to intellectually assent to the fact that Jesus is God. 
but your heart's got to get involved because when he begins to speak to you as God, if your heart sees him as God, that's when you're going to then respond to him as God. You can mentally assent, but we want to get our hearts involved in knowing and believing and seeing that glory. Now there's so much that we could talk about, about Jesus being both God and man, but we're gonna go on as well. So the next one, I sang about this this morning, lion and lamb, right? Is Jesus a lion or is Jesus a lamb? Yes, yes, right. I was waiting for that person who said yes earlier to say it again. All right. Scripture actually calls him both starting way back, way back at the beginning of time. We see the first references in Genesis, in Genesis 22, when Isaac asked his father Abraham, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham answered, God will provide the lamb. And that was a prophetic word already way back in Genesis of Jesus. Then you get to Genesis uh, chapter 49. In a prophetic word to the tribe of Judah, they are told this, the scepter, meaning the authority to rule, shall not depart from you. You will reign as a lion. And we know that Jesus' lineage comes from the tribe of Judah. So that is why he is called what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. So throughout scripture, all the way back from the very beginning there in Genesis, but all the way through, the Bible prophesies of Jesus being both lion and lamb many times over. So what is the answer to our question? Yes, right? Is Jesus a lion or a lamb? Yes, he is a lion, he is a lamb, but he is both. And his being both exactly reveals the nature of our God. You know, you think about the, the opposite qualities of a lion and a lamb. A lion is often honored for his ferocious strength, right? His imperial appearance and his crushing dominance. It, it's a lion who rules the jungle. All others submit to him. They bow to him. They don't have an election and vote him in, right? He just comes in and he is because he is ruler of the jungle, king of the jungle. But then you think about a lamb. It's often distinct for its tender and gentle spirit and relationship. And also the food that a lamb provides and the clothing that it provides. So lion, lamb, I mean, you couldn't be more opposite. How could Jesus be both? Well, we're gonna gaze at that glory. We're gonna spend quite a bit of time on this this morning. You know, even though there's a lot of places in scripture that reveal Jesus as a lion, some reveal him as a lamb, and Revelation 5 actually reveals him as both in the very same moment. So I want you to go there. We're just gonna kind of park it there for a while in Revelation chapter 5. So when we get there, we see John, who God used to write Revelation. He's in the middle of just seeing crazy things, all right, that God is revealing. He's just taking it all in. He's writing it down, these revelations that God is giving him, and now we are able to read. In John chapter 4, you see this scene in heaven where God was sitting on the throne, and the elders and the angels and the creatures are just all around him in worship. Why? because he's glorious, all right? But then chapter five begins, 
And John tells us how he sees this book. Some of your Bible versions might say a scroll. In the hand of God who's sitting on the throne. But the book was sealed. And nobody was able to open this book or even look inside it. We're going to read the first four verses. So follow along with me. John writes, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to even look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So, what was the book? What was this scroll? Now we're not gonna get into too many details, but we are gonna spend a little bit of time here. I wanna share two perspectives with you that I think are gonna help us to wrap our heads around why this, why this scroll was so important and why it was so important for somebody to be able to open it. All right, so first perspective. It's believed that this seven sealed uh, scroll or book could be likened to what we would understand today as like a title deed to earth, okay? Now in our minds, if you've ever dealt with property, owning property, anything like that, titles or deeds contain information about the property. Most times it contains some kind of a description. So it traces the story of the property, including who owned it, when they owned it. A lot of times it will talk about the new owner when a new owner takes over. A lot of times it also holds like legal description for future use. So think about this book being like a title deed to earth. So what would be in that book? It would probably contain the story of creation, like how this property came to be. How Adam was by God who owned the earth because he created it and he gave dominion to Adam, right? He gave that to Adam to have dominion over the earth. But then probably it would tell the story of how Adam lost that dominion over the earth when sin took over and all of the destruction that happened and then this, the different things going on through time. But the future plan for this property would also be contained in this title deed. And that would be that Christ is gonna come He's gonna judge the earth, he's gonna redeem the earth, and he's gonna provide a great inheritance for his people, all right? So the scroll would be really important. You know, if you've ever had to deal with a, a piece of property that you're selling or buying, if you don't have the title, you don't really have any authority for that property, right? It's very important to have that. But there's also a second perspective that we really need to understand to get this scene in our minds. So think with me about a Jewish family and their property. Back in Bible days, if for some reason, some unfortunate circumstance or whatever, maybe even bad choices, they were to lose their property, okay, or their possessions, their property could not be permanently taken away from them because God had provided a law and it was called the law of Jubilee, all right? And it protected them from permanent loss. And here's how that law worked. Their losses would be listed on the inside of the scroll, okay? The title, the deed. And then it would be sealed up seven times. And then the qualifications necessary for someone to be able to open that scroll, literally what that means to be able to open it would mean you take it and it becomes yours, okay? 
in, in order for someone to be able to do that, the qualifications were listed on the outside of the scroll, many times on the back of the scroll, okay? Now, these qualifications usually included things like family relationship, wealth, position, and if they were qualified, then they, during the year of Jubilee, they could come and they could buy it back. They could open it up and purchase it back for the family. So it's not just about being able to open it, like, woo, right? You know, it's about getting it back, owning it, property, all right? Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but are you starting to see the parallels here, okay? Between these two perspectives. They help us to understand what we read in verse one where it says, I saw him sitting on the throne and there was a book. It was written on the inside and on the outside and it was sealed up with seven seals. See, we know that when Jesus created the earth, he gave the title deed to earth to Adam. He said, you have dominion over the earth, rule over the earth, right? But through that unfortunate, destructive choice that Adam and Eve made, who has been ruling in the earth? Satan has been the prince of the earth for a long time. In other words, he has the title. But Jesus had come and he had preached hope that a day of Jubilee was coming when the people of God would be redeemed, when all that was wrong and rightfully um, had, been taken, had been taken away from us would rightfully be restored. And guess who had been his closest disciple while Jesus went about on the earth? John himself, right? So John was up on the mountain like we talked about last night. He saw Jesus. He had witnessed the resurrected Christ in the flesh. And he had literally given his life to proclaiming this message. In fact, when he's writing the book of Revelation, he is being persecuted horribly. He's been exiled to an island. He's off completely isolated. And yet God used that horrible thing to bring in this amazing glory, right? So the glory shows up in the craziest of places. But all that to say, John has literally given his life to this mission of getting this title, this deed back. But now in this moment, in the midst of all the persecution, and he's seeing these visions and maybe he's starting to get a little hope, and then he's like, no one can open it. Do you see why he's weeping? Do you start to get a feel? You think if you've given your whole life to something, right? And then think about right now, if you found out right now in this moment, everything you've ever believed about Jesus, it wasn't true. Would you start weeping? Yes. You start thinking about nothing's going to be redeemed. Nothing's going to be restored. When we understand these things, we get it. Why he's crying these tears of anguish. One writer said it this way. No one being able to open the scroll would mean for John that history moving forward will not be governed by righteousness. No judgment upon an evil world. No ultimate triumph for believers. No new heaven, no new earth, no future inheritance. Basically, no redemption for anyone. So John's just weeping, and I think we can see why. See, there was a time in the earth when no one had been able to open the scroll. Revelation is literally walk, walks us through the history of the things that have gone on and then the things that are to come. But see, then Jesus, who is God, became who? A man, right? And so we read on then in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, 
the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So there is this, you know, total just being distraught to now this great elation, right? Because there is someone after all, and not just someone, but a lion. A lion is strong and imperial and dominant and crushing. He comes in and he rules. So you could just picture John, just try to identify with him in this moment. After this elder declares, the lion from the tribe of Judah is able to open the book. In other words, to buy it back. This is the moment you've given your life to, that all of, of your whole trajectory of your, of your being for the last, what, 50 years, you have been moving toward. Can you imagine what's beginning to happen in his heart? And he's a young or an old Jewish man, and he knows about who? The lion of the tribe of of Judah. He knows those prophecies. So he starts scanning the room, just looking for the lion. But now let's read verse six. And I saw between the throne with the four creatures, the elders, a lamb. What? Where's the lion? What in the world is a lamb going to be able to do here? The elder said lion. So what is a lamb doing here? But we know that John also knows the lamb slain, right? And what we have to see is that this is not just any lamb. Keep reading with me. He saw a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. See, this lamb was slain, slain but he was what? He was standing. This lamb had seven horns and he had seven eyes. Those symbolize complete authority, the seven horns, and complete vision, able to see all things. That's not the way you usually see a lamb. Verse 7 tells us that the lamb came and he took the scroll out of the hand of the one who sat on the throne. Think of that in your mind. That is a powerful moment, full of glory because the lamb takes the title deed and he is about to bring real lasting permanent change to the earth there is no voting him into office nobody gets to decide are we going to let him do this or not what does the majority think no the lion crushing and royal in appearance comes in and takes over but he's also a lamb Yes, hallelujah. And when he takes the scroll, it's the answer to millions of prayers prayed and some that have not even been prayed yet. When we say your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. It's the remedy to all the tears like John's, like ours that have been shed throughout all of time. Why? Because Jesus alone He's the only one out of heaven, earth, under the earth, as both God and man, lion and lamb, who meets the qualifications on the outside of the scroll. Now, we don't know exactly what those qualifications were, but we can imagine based on what was often expected in those credentials or qualifications. And they're only true of Jesus. Let's think about what they might be. Relation, all right? See, one of the qualifications usually in these situations was that you had to be a kinsman 
That's why we read about it in the book of Ruth, a kinsman redeemer, and there's all kinds of imagery there of Jesus. But, right? but meaning a family member. And this goes back to Jesus being both God and man. Jesus is our kinsman. He's related to us in humanity, but he's also who? The kinsman of God, right? He's got the relation that is needed to open it. Divine wealth. So for a person to buy back property, they usually had to have wealth. But we're not talking money here. We're talking a wealth of righteousness. Jesus alone was the only one wealthy in righteousness to be able to afford the cost required to purchase, right? And that cost was his life. No other human had that wealth of righteousness. The Bible says, what about our righteousness? We're poor, we're destitute, it's like filthy rags, okay? And you might be thinking, yeah, but God's sitting on the throne. He is righteous. Yes, he is. But he never became a man, right? And so that other qualification wouldn't have been met. Jesus has both of those requirements. Relation, divine wealth, and I think we could also imagine these. Divine authority. Usually the qualifications listed on the outside of the scroll to open it included authority. And in this case, divine authority would be needed. And the only man who would ever have divine authority is who? Jesus. And then you're talking about power. You need to have some uh, um, power to be able to, you know, buy this back. Jesus was the only one on earth who had the power over the one thing that was the most important, that had been the thing that made us lose the title in the first place, and that is the power over sin and death. And Jesus alone did. Every other man would have been lacking, even the strongest of men, but Jesus alone can overcome death. And Jesus is so glorious because of all these things. Hebrews 1 and Revelation 5 makes it clear that he met the qualifications. Jesus is the only one. Can somebody say, Glory, right? Glory. Hallelujah. But let's look at this too. Why would the elders say the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the scroll? But then we look and we see the lamb. We have to see he wasn't an ordinary lamb. How did verse 6 describe Jesus? As a lamb what? Standing. In the Jewish culture, lamps were slain every day. And not one, after being struck down, ever got up and walked away, okay? But Jesus could because he's not just a lamb. He's also a lion. He has the scars of death, but he has the signs of life. See, we see him here in verse 6 as slain. So visibly, for them in the room, the signs of death must have been upon him. Now, we don't know what that was, but I mean, maybe literally blood was still dripping from his wounds. We don't know, but we do know that everyone in the room saw him as slain. But now, he's not in that bloody heap on the floor anymore. There are no mourners around him weeping and crying because he has died. No, he's standing up. He was slain, but death could not keep him. There was a lion roar on the inside of him that brought him up and resurrected him to overcome death and stand as the only one in heaven and on earth, distinguished 
displayed in front of us. Are you seeing who Jesus is? All right, that's glory. The meekness of a lamb, but the strength, the readiness, the majesty of a lion. And it is both of these things that qualify him to be the liberator and redeemer of the world because he came first as the lamb, so he can come now again, wow, as the lion. He rescued the world as a lamb so that he can rule the world as a lion. The lion is the lamb. He is both. One is his first coming, one is his second. Do you see the glory of Jesus in these diverse excellencies that collide within him, that shine beams of light into all kinds of places in our lives? He has all this lion authority. He could crush us for our sins, and yet, instead, he willingly took on the role of a lamb to be crushed for us. Glory, right? Glory. Hallelujah. The word lamb that we see here in Revelation when it says a lamb standing, I want to talk about that for a moment. It is a very unique word. It's only used two times in the New Testament. And it actually refers to a pet lamb. A beautiful little tender lamb. Meaning this is a sweet little thing that you would cuddle and you would get to know and you would love it and it would love you back. Most of us are probably familiar with Passover and how every Jewish family would take a lamb that was a year old or younger. And it had to be beautiful and it had to be spotless and perfect. But the family would take that baby lamb home for at least four days. And it would become a part of the family. It would become a pet to the children. And then on the day of Passover, its throat would be split open and it would bleed out like a sacrifice for the family, saving them from death. Imagine the dynamics of that. Sit in that and meditate on that for a moment. But it would also become food for them, both physically and spiritually. And so we see in Jesus a lamb who lived among us, relating to us and loving us, and yet he gave himself as a sacrifice to save us from death and to feed us with life. And not only that, but to clothe us as well. See, a lamb was not only necessary for sacrifice, a lamb, when sheared, would also provide what? The wool necessary for our clothing. Jesus alone provided what no one could for us. When we were clothed in rags of rebellion and sin, Jesus humbly gave himself to clothe us in robes of righteousness. There's glory in Jesus being a lamb. There's glory in Jesus being a lion. But oh, the radiant beams of his glory when we see him as both together. The truth of these distinctions put on display in front of us should deeply impact our hearts, right? Oh, to know the tender friendship of Jesus. And it's tender. It's sweet. It's so good. The salvation, the sacrifice, the relationship he brings. But oh, to also know Jesus as a lion roaring, majestic, and regal, fighting for us, but also ruling us. Yes, our Messiah Jesus is both. And we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, do we know him as both? Throughout all of time, man has tended to create their own perfect version of a Messiah. People do it all the time. It's still happening today. 
In our limited understanding, when we don't know the word of God, we tend to lean into one extreme or the other. When we get caught up in our flesh and our desires and our you know, appetites and passions, we tend to lean one way or the other. We make him out to be fierce like a lion, and he is, ruling and judging and, 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 and crushing, or we make him out to be tender like a lamb, comforting and befriending and providing blessing. We often struggle to embrace him as both. And even those of us who know him as both, many times we separate him out to be this and out to be that. But he's not this and that, he's this, right? He's all of that together. And you cannot relate to him as just a lamb or just a lion because that same lamb is a lion and that same lion is a lamb. We've got to learn to get into the glory of who he is and let him be both. Most of the time the world and even many times in the church is not going to present him that way because in our flesh we tend to lean. When I was growing up, I only heard of Jesus more in the lion sense. Fighting sin, ruling with authority, right? Judging me fiercely. I never knew him as a merciful friend, a grace-filled lamb, tenderly caring for me and providing for me and feeding me and clothing me. But in our culture today, I would say to you, things have swung to the other extreme. People tend to lean toward fashioning Jesus only as a lamb, as a friend, as a provider, and I would say with sadness, even sometimes as a pet. In our culture of relative humanism, no one wants to talk these days about Jesus being a lion, meaning he's the judge, meaning he's the authority, the one who recompenses sin. I would say to you, it was such a loss in my formative years to only see Jesus as a lion. But I would say to you today, it is equally a loss for us to only see Jesus as a lamb. Because scripture reveals the glory of Jesus is that he is both. We needed our God to come to earth and become like us. To become tender, to become comforting, humble and willing to give of himself. But that is not all we need, ladies. We also need him to stand up as that lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, meaning he has complete authority and he can see every single thing about who we are, right? And he rises up and he rules and he reigns. He's fierce, he's strong, he's dominant. He is feared as Lord over all. I wanna read something to you, it's a little long. Don't try to take notes on it, just listen. This is something that Bodhi Balkum wrote recently and he said this. He said, Jesus Christ is able to judge the world because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the justice of God. We don't like to speak about Jesus in those terms, but if you don't, then you are missing one of the most important aspects of who he is. Because what does redemption mean if there's no justice? What are you saved from if there's no wrath of God? What are you rescued from if there's not a day that's going to come when he actually does exact vengeance upon sin? What have you been transferred from if not from the darkness of judgment to light and redemption? You cannot appreciate the redemption you have in Christ unless you understand the authority and the justice and the judgment of God that will, that must come against the wickedness of sin. And you will never turn to Christ unless you understand this because you don't have anything to flee from if there's no judgment. You don't believe you need a savior if there is no justice against 
the wicked. Glory. Glory. Hallelujah. See, as the scenes of Revelation continue, we see Jesus as the Lamb opening up the seals, revealing all that's in the scroll, but we also see him judging sin. A lamb would never have had the authority to do that unless he was also what? A lion. We tend to have a picture of Jesus being lowly Jesus, meek and mild. He just wants to be your friend. Ladies, that is not the full gospel. The gospel says you and me are wretched sinners. We have sinned against a holy and righteous God, and we will face that God, and his justice will be poured out upon us. But the good news of the gospel says flee from your sin, run to the Lamb of God, who is Christ himself, and he will save you. See, the one who judges you, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is also the one who saves you, the lamb slain. And it is truly glorious to know such a savior. Never will you feel such tender love and such fierce protection all in the same person. Such mercy, such justice, such tenderness of heart and a warrior's cry. Can somebody say glory, right? Glory, hallelujah. We have a humble savior and we have a warrior and we need him as both. God, open our eyes that we would see you in all your glory. Forgive us, God, for minimizing you. See, the reality is the more you look, the more you see. Or I should put it like this, the more distinctly you see. Like, have you ever seen a sunrise? I actually, yesterday morning this happened. I walked out to see the sunrise, and there were very distinct beams of light. See, sometimes it's just light, and then sometimes you actually see those distinct beams of light streaming. I feel like that's what we're, we're looking at today. Distinct realities about Jesus. See, I know for me many times before I really saw so many of these glories of Jesus. I mean, I come into a worship situation and I do. I mean, I love Jesus with all my heart and I, I know he's glorious and I, I know he's to be praised. So just kind of with these sweeping glances of light, I'm just like, yes, Jesus, I love you. And I sing the songs about Jesus, but I couldn't really articulate why. I couldn't be distinct about who he is and what is that glory in Jesus. But today God is showing us so that when we raise our arms and worship, we, we, we see distinctly who our God is. We've already seen so much, but as we bring this to a close, I wanna mention just a few more of these. We're just gonna read through them. You actually have a sheet in your folder that says the divergent excellencies of Christ. Some people list these out as all separate things. I really personally believe that they build one upon the other. We start with Jesus being God and man. Then we see him as lion and lamb. And then all of these other things become more distinct or help those two to become even more distinct. Let's read through them. They help them to become brighter. See, we can look at Jesus and see he is transcendent as God. And yet he submits to God. He's uncompromisingly just toward our sins. And yet he is savior from it. He's majestic in every way. And yet he is meekness personified again and again. These are glories, ladies. He is equal with God, and yet he is reverent before him. He's worthy of all good, and yet he's willing to suffer evil. He has sovereign dominion over the world, and yet he clothed himself with what? Obedience and submission. Do you see how opposite these things are? And yet they collide in the person of Jesus. Glory, glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
He baffled the proud, proud scribes with wisdom, and yet he was simple enough to be loved by children. He could still the storm with a word, and yet he would not take himself off the cross. He's infinitely holy and infinitely merciful. He has infinite glory and lowest humility. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the great I am, and yet he chose to become a humble servant. So much to see in Jesus. And maybe we've thought, oh, I know Jesus. No, we don't. There's so much glory to see. All these things are only distinct to one person, Jesus alone. All of his other messengers, Jesus rises high and above, and God wants us to see the glory of who he is. See, here's the thing. If we only saw him in the highness of his glory, right? As God, as a lion. I mean, those views would be enough to probably stop us in our tracks. They would draw in our attention and awe and wonder, but it would be distant, right? It would be this distant glory, a God to look up to, a God to honor, to worship, but he would be far off. But that's not the way it is. He is high and mighty, but it's in these divergent excellencies that we see it gets put on display in front of us that he stooped low, right? He's God, but he became a man. He's a lion, but he became a land. All that to bring glory to us. Why? So that we can touch him, so that we can experience him, to dance in his glory all over the shoreline and start saying, Jesus, Jesus, look, I'm seeing Jesus. Are you seeing Jesus? Yeah. The question is, when we see that, when somebody else tells us those things, what are we doing? Do we glance up or do we gaze, ladies? Do we gaze? Do you remember when I told you about that little boy, JC and the dolphins? Can you imagine if those dolphins just swam right up on the shoreline and began talking to JC? Now, that would never happen, you say, and you're probably right, but you know what, God can do anything. And that might be, though, the reason this family never looked up. They've been coming to the beach. They've seen dolphins before, nothing new. They're just out there in the water. Yeah, they're glorious to glance at, look at, you know, but still very impersonal. But some would also just glance at Jesus for the very same reason. He's far off. I've looked before. But the reality about Jesus is this. He did swim up on the shore. Crazy as it seems, he brought all of the glory that he has with him for us. See, just imagine with me, I know it probably wouldn't happen, but just imagine with me if those dolphins had swum up on the shore, JC hopped on the back of one of them and went on a ride. I bet his family would have looked up then, right? But even more so, what about us? What would happen if we would gaze long enough to see that our Jesus really has come to the shoreline of where heaven meets earth and he wants to take us on a ride, ladies, on the heights of his glory. See, each of these divergent excellencies, they're not just for looking at, they're for experiencing. This morning, I have literally stood on the shoreline, I feel like, and I've run up and down and I'm trying to go, Jesus, Jesus, would you look at Jesus? All right, I feel like I've been doing that, all right? But my words, as much as I've prepared and prepped and, and talked to you this morning, I know this. I know they are not enough. I can't show you enough. I can't describe it well enough. I can't paint these excellencies of Jesus' glory enough. I do my best, but I know it is not enough. And I want to make you aware of this too. 
You might be sitting on the edge of your seat looking, and if you are, I think it's great, but your looking is not enough. It, it is not enough. Even when we do gaze, our eyes are dim. They're clouded with stuff from this world. We're limited in our humanity, but that's why Jesus also said in the Gospels that he will put the Holy Spirit on the inside of us to illumine our hearts beyond what we could see on our own. You know, Jesus said several times in the Gospels, seeing they do not see, meaning they see me a little, but they're not really seeing me for who I am. They're not seeing the radiance of God's glory in me. They're not seeing that I am God. See, all of this not enoughness, when we think about that, you know, it could be really disheartening, and it would be, except for Jesus did tell us that he would fill us with his spirit, who would empower us and illumine the eyes of our hearts, and he does that. Throughout the centuries, he has illumined the hearts of thousands upon thousands. And you know what? When we look in Revelation 5, in verse 13, it says thousands upon thousands are around the throne. You know why? Because they've seen the glory of Jesus. And you know what they're crying out? Honor and power and glory to Jesus. That's the response recorded here. But what is the response happening on the inside of us as we look? As Rebecca begins to play, I'm going to invite you to reach for your journal and to get ready to respond, okay? I know for me, I mean, I've been studying and prepping to share all of this, but just even in recent days, like just a few days ago, it was after we got here, I was reading through that again, and just the Holy Spirit illumined something to be in that passage in Revelation 5. So if I was writing in my journal today, this is what I would write about. When the elder said to John, stop weeping, that, that just jumped off the page at me. And I realized that's not just for that moment. That was for me. The, the Holy Spirit was saying, you know what? Jesus has come as lion and lamb in your life, so why are you weeping? Everything that you need is answered in the fact that in the glory that he is both lion and lamb. And that would be my response. What, what's your response? I would talk to Jesus about that. Maybe for you, it's just this honor. It's this awe and wonder as maybe some new realities about Jesus have been open to you. Maybe it's a place of repentance as you realize he really does see. He's got seven eyes and he's looking at me. And he is a fierce lion and I need to repent. And I need to respond to him in that way. Maybe it's a drawing near. You didn't realize how tender Jesus really is and the sacrifice. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of responses that should be just pinging in our hearts when we see the glory of Jesus. So however the Lord has used his word to reveal his son to you this morning, I wanna ask you to take your journal and respond to him and write out a prayer in your journal for that. And as the Lord directs you, Grab one of those glory cards out of the back of your journal, too, and write something down.
I'm going to invite you to stand with me and pray. I'm going to pray together. If you'll just join me as we come before the Lord together. You've been praying individually, but let's join in prayer together. Oh God, how we are prone to minimize you, but how your word reveals you in all your glory. Thank you for your word that opens up the heavens for us and lets us see who you are. We marvel at what we see. Your written word, but the living word Jesus shows us who you are. How can you be God and yet be a man like us? How can you be so holy and so fierce and, and a, like a lion yet tender hearted like a lamb, willing to lay down your life? And you weren't just willing, but you actually did it. We've never known anyone like you, Jesus, but we are looking. So open our eyes to see you, God. We can't open our eyes on our own, but you can open the eyes of our heart. Open them to see the exact representation of who you are. Jesus, you prayed that we would see your glory. Answer that prayer today. Tear down our, our self-made images of you. Banish from our mind low thoughts about Christ. Saturate our souls then with the truth of who you are and all your greatness. Open our eyes to see how it's you who meets every part of who we are. With your provision, with your care, with your comfort, your rescue, your understanding, your compassion, your purpose, your future, and more. Just like the angel said to John, stop weeping because you were in the room ready to fight for us. May what we see in you cause us to stop weeping because we see who you are. And that's not the, the stop weeping like an angry father telling their child to dry up their tears. It's a tender hearted cry out to our hearts that all you need is met in Jesus. Help us to see you for who you are. You are everything we need and you rule. We repent of thinking of any way about you that is not who you are. We repent of thinking so much of our opinions that we don't even search out what your word says. We ask for more revelation and we commit to gazing, gazing at your glory. We ask for tender touches from you as our lamb, that we would experience your tender presence and care and provision. And we ask you, God, we give you permission to rule and reign in our lives. We submit to your authority. We submit to your truth, your ways, your ideas. You are the king, Jesus, not us, not our ideas, not our thoughts, but yours. You alone rule. May the power of the lion and the love of the lamb make our faith in Christ unshakable. Your glory is excellent, Jesus. Open the eyes of our hearts to see it. Open the eyes of our hearts. That is the cry today.